0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Victoria Lupashko, your host, and today we are talking with Dr. Mitch Nyawalo about his most recent book, Teaching in Times of Crisis, Applying Comparative Literature in the Classroom, published by Routledge in 2021. Hello, Dr. Nyawalo, and welcome to the New Books Network channel. Thank you for agreeing to talk to us today.
1: Hello, uh, thank you so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. And um, I'll get right into uh, into the interview and um, you know, I'll ask you first, um, you know, just to, to get to know you better and your work as well. I'll ask whether you could tell us more about how you came to this project, you know, about your intellectual path so far, and how you got interested in the connection between comparative literature and pedagogy.
1: Well, uh, this actually started uh, a long time ago when I was still a graduate student uh at, at Penn State University and uh uh in the department of, of comparative literature to be more specific. And uh what was interesting is at that time, as as like many grad students as new teachers, uh me and uh my friends, uh my fellow grad students in the de- department often depended on each other to just share teaching strategies and, and, and talk about pedagogy. And uh, one of the things that we noticed, because none of us wanted to really reinvent the wheel each and every time, and so we'd always have these meetings or these informal meetings in informal settings where we'd talk about what we did in the classroom, uh, what challenges we encountered, what are some of the opportunities and and successes we had. And we'd basically uh, copy each other's strategies, and and we discovered that that really worked uh, really well for us, but what really quickly uh, became evident out of these endeavors was that we constantly noticed that in order to really effectively engage with some of the prominent uh, challenges that emerge in the quest room, in the classroom, specifically while teaching world literature classes, uh, that we uh, constantly had to resort and to think through many of the major uh, theoretical debates in the field of comparative literature. Uh, and so uh, whether it was uh, uh, as we would go to our graduate seminars and would read uh, texts about uh, translation and, and and the question of translation uh, and, and debates about translation in world literature or uh, the corpus of world literature, how do you define world literature and, and issues of circulation and so on and so forth and uh, uh problematic reading strategies when you're reading texts uh, across national and cultural contexts and 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 some of the issues uh problematic issues that one had to sidestep uh we noticed that in designing our syllabi uh in teaching world literature to our students that we were in in order to do that effectively uh we were actually incorporating not just incorporating Uh, but who were really engaging. There was no way to sidestep many of the major debates in the field of comparative literature. Uh, And and that they were really part of the process of planning a lesson plan, uh, designing a syllabus, planning an activity, that that they they were often part and parcel of the process, and that in the practice of teaching, of, of doing all these things that teachers do, uh, we were actually implementing, engaging, rejecting, or incorporating various theoretical aspects uh, uh, from the discipline of comparative literature, and so this is this was the aha moment where, as we'd talk about just uh, teaching practices uh, in our you know as new teachers, uh, that we found ourselves constantly really uh uh reflecting back on many of these texts that we're discussing in our seminars um and and uh me and my friends came to the realization that hey well you know this comparative literature as a discipline is really uh a discipline that is uh uh focused not so much of a corpus of texts, but but primarily the focus is on a method right when uh you take texts across cultural and national contexts uh what are some of the methods that you use to engage with this text uh, and these differences and these similarities, uh, and that if comparative literature is a method, teaching is also a method, and these two things really overlap neatly, right? And and part of the comparative methods that are are discussed in the abstract in theory actually really effectively fit well with certain pedagogic conundrums and uh, or ways of engaging with pedagogic conundrums that emerge in the classroom and so that's 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 really what what got me me started and and one of the uh my frustrations uh has been uh, uh sometimes me and my friends we attended various talks and and conferences and uh someone would would talk about i don't know uh franco meretti Pascal casanova or Damrosh, or Emily Apter or Edward Said or any, or Judith Butler, any of the texts uh, and, and and scholars in the field or Gugiwa Thiongo. And we would, uh, uh, one of us would uh, at some point bring up pedagogy and would say, well, this is interesting. Um, uh, you know, I think this question that you've asked uh, in this talk uh, really uh, is really relevant or can be discussed or can be solved uh, uh in a much more engaging way by thinking about it in pedagogic terms and very often the response was uh, uh either the person was startled or the response would be "Oh well we know we are all great teachers uh, and then kind of like bracket off the question and 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 go back to kind of like re- discussing it in 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 uh in ways that never incorporated pedagogy it's, it's pedagogy was that uh that thing that People discussed, you know, of course, you'd had workshops about here's how to design a syllabus, here learning outcomes. But somehow there was this hesitancy to recognize that even as a, 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 more, a, a method for conducting research, uh, that the classroom would really offer uh, fruitful insights in order, as a way of theorizing the very discipline and engaging with theories about the discipline of comparative literature. Uh, so that's uh, that was uh, that's where that's where the project really started for me. Yeah.
0: That's fascinating. And um I also think that, you know, to just add to to what you're saying earlier, I think the graduate um programs and grad- class, right, the classroom itself um lends itself to being this almost like a laboratory, right, where people come from all over the world and have all these perceptions, right, and then come to comparative literature. And using that the method you're describing can actually be way more fruitful than just you know following the the more beaded path, i guess more more walked on path of uh, you know just <laughs> you read the text and then you just talk about it, and that's pretty much it, right so I think the um the multiple perspective and the comparison itself and the broadness that comparative literature can offer um are are things that. We all should engage with more, I think. Um, and I'm only speaking from my own perspective, so. Um, right. So um, the book, it's it's amazing. It was so uh, so useful to me, I think. And um, absolutely. And you know, it's it's uh, comprised of the introduction, six memos, and the conclusions. And one very very interesting and exciting thing to me was that instead of chapters, we have memos here. And. I would like to invite you to tell us more about this choice and the meaning for the book, but also for the argument itself.
1: Yes. Uh, so as I, I was kind of thinking about this project, uh, and the project really came to, into fruition. So as I said, it started in graduate school, but uh, you know, kind of like the first written text in this project was really uh when I was first hired as as uh as an assistant professor at Shawnee State University. And that was my kind of like my first job out, out of grad school. Um, and uh as I was thinking about this project uh, it and, and and what it would mean to uh think about research and scholarship uh through the performance of pedagogy, uh, uh it, it occurred to me that I also had to think about questions of form uh what what form will the book take and and how can i experiment performatively with the form in order to kind of like maybe engage with this this different way of thinking about research and that is where uh the memo came into being uh and uh the memo obviously is is really influenced by uh al Kadir's book uh, uh uh memos from the besieged city Uh, where uh, he basically uh, talks about the memo and defines the memo as uh, a way of not only capturing things that have been done in the past or something, you know, to to recall something that has happened in the past, but also that act of recalling has an ever-present relationship with the present, right? Or has a constant relationship with the present, uh, a dynamic relationship with the present uh, uh and the future as well and so as i was thinking about kind of uh this new question of 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 formatting the book uh or this project uh i it, it 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 quickly became evident that first and foremost if i'm going to talk about pedagogy uh and and in the classroom i have to uh include my own subjectivity and my own position so that has to be uh, you know it can i can't just talk about it in the abstract i have to talk about my own lived experience as a black body in the classroom right and, and not just as a black body but as a, as a black body who is an immigrant right who uh is also kind of like uh marked uh by by what some students may recognize as an accent right Uh, and, and, and so, you know, so, so I have to incorporate my otherness in the classroom, uh, as well as the diversity and the diverse composition of students. And so, uh, that's where I found the memo to be really useful, where things would happen in the classroom, uh, uh, as you can see throughout the book and, uh, immediately, as soon as I left the classroom, uh, I would just go back home, get to my home office, get on my laptop and just type my reflection about what what on earth occurred there? What was this? And and just try to make sense of this uh, and then return the next day, use comparative methods in order to attempt to engage with what was happening. Or even as I was, even before the class started, I was designing my syllabus. Uh, This was about just making reflections on my day-to-day process and practice of Of teaching and engaging with different things that happen. And so this is where kind of like this idea of the memo came into place where uh, I, uh, you know, and, and, you know, this is also partially uh, influenced by the writings of Bell Hooks, where she, in terms of writing about pedagogy, she uh, encourages uh, scholars to uh, reflect on their and incorporate their own personal experiences, right? Not just uh, as educators, not just kind of like make it abstract and invisible uh that 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 is a more effective way of thinking about pedagogy by always incorporating your own position and subjectivity uh, and so that's that's where I've, i I found the the idea of the memo uh to uh, to work really well so instead of chapters, uh, you have reflections uh an incident something has happened in the classroom, and I write about it and I talk about how I attempt to engage and grapple with this incident through the theories uh and, uh developed uh and 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 uh contested often hotly contested in the discipline of comparative literature so uh yeah that's 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 why i found the idea of the memo to be uh, uh to be really sounds useful sounds
0: very yeah. useful yes and i might be tempted to actually uh engage with it more in my own courses <laughs> um so um yeah, I think it it actually uh, brings um, everything, and you know the the introduction sets this up, uh, of course, and um, you know it it kind of all congeals together very very nicely. And uh, as I mentioned, the introduction right sets um, puts the the scaffolding, sets the parameters for the book, and it actually does not accept the binary uh, that you know we're familiar with between pedagogy and research but remaps different paths of practicing scholarship while having the comparative methods um, as a center, as, as you mentioned before, uh, right before, right? So um, I will quote a little bit here. On page two, you, you mentioned that the book focuses on the role of comparatists as cultural mediators in the classroom and also engages the social crisis that culminated into the rise of an ethno-nationalist presidency and the re-legitimation of open white supremacy in political discourse and policy. So I was thinking about this and, you know, I, I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit more about the overarching arguments um, that you make in the book and their conceptualization over time. Um, you already uh, mentioned how the memo plays here, but, you know, I wanted a little bit more, um, you know, on the introduction.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yes. So I I basically, yes, envision comparative literature or what comparatives do in the classroom. As uh the way we operate is is in, in in the role or in our capacity as cultural mediators. In other words, we have uh the texts, right, stemming from different uh nationals, uh, you know, the world literature uh the books we incorporate in our world literature books, books stemming from different national and cultural contexts. Uh, and then we have uh our students who also come from diverse backgrounds. And they also read the texts and their readings of these materials are really shaped by their own backgrounds, interests and experiences. Uh, and that comes bearing into their strategies for reading or, or sometimes in productive ways, sometimes in problematic ways. Uh, and so when, whenever I am designing a syllabus, uh, you know, I always keep in mind, okay, where are my students coming from, right? And what type of books will I select that will also uh, enable them to. That will challenge them in particular ways. Uh, you know what? Uh, how will my students read this text, and what strategies will I navigate and develop in order to develop more productive forms of reading in the context of the classroom? Uh, and so, yes, uh, you know, I, in that sense, am a cultural mediator between the text coming from all these national and cultural contexts and my students also from diverse backgrounds. And I'm basically, uh, it is kind of like the classroom is the third space of comparison, right? That space that enables, enables this interaction between students, teachers, and techs, uh, and me, uh, you know, basically setting things up in order to have, uh, or mediating things in order to have a much more fruitful and, and uh, uh, fruitful discussion. Now, as I started doing this, uh in, in 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 the classroom. And uh this was uh of course kind of like you know my book is set uh you know during a period preceding uh preceding and preceding kind of like the 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 rise of Donald Trump, the the rise uh of uh conspicuous uh, ethno-nationalism right within US American politics uh I noticed that uh you know that that in the discussions and texts that I selected and uh, some of the learning outcomes and some of the debates that that we engaged in class, that uh, more and more, uh, many of those sections and my my role as a cultural mediator uh, really became increasingly shaped through uh, the cultural politics of the time. where, of course, you know, when you're living at a time when uh, immigrants are scapegoated and and I am an immigrant myself, and uh, you are teaching works about diversity, about uh, cultural differences, about empire, about colonialism, about uh, violence uh, uh, across uh, n- not just within one country, but across national boundaries. Uh, about race and racism and and gender and so on and so forth, Uh, that uh, inherently you're also, uh, I think, speaking to, uh, and sometimes in very direct ways, speaking to uh, some of the things and some of the issues that students have to tackle outside of the classroom. And indeed, students come to your class with uh, certain apprehensions, expectations that are informed by the political times. And so you know the, the classroom was not just this hermetically sealed room, right, where you could just do a comparative analysis for the sake of a comparative analysis, right? As uh, David Palumbo Liu says, you know there has to be an ethics before comparison, right? There are ethical questions that inherently are inherently connected to the comparative methods that you favor in the classroom, and and those ethical questions are about yes social justice equality fairness diversity and so on and so forth and uh uh and and so yeah uh and and so i found that it is it was often through my classes that uh i was also able to engage with uh, m- uh me and my students were able to engage with many of the d- debates and many of the topics and issues uh that uh really permeated our uh, Contemporary political. Culture. That's
0: very, yeah. um, you know, very useful in a in a sense. I mean, if I may use the word useful, but um, it's also um, you know keeping in touch with with our own context and you know our own histories, right? Whether as students or as professors or you know as as mediators, as you mentioned, and it it does bring the the significance of our time and the time past in building some sort of future uh, into into focus, right? Um, so oh, um, yeah, I, I really uh, enjoyed this. Uh, you know, reading of course uh, the book, but also thinking about how to to keep all of this in mind while we we design syllabi and while we we engage with our students. And I think you 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 touch on this um, in the first uh, memo, right, entitled "The Deliverance or Domestication of Others: Memos for Comparative Literature Classes in Appalachia." And um, you conceive the, the world literature classroom as delivery systems that bring a plethora of uh, cultural words, uh, worlds in contact with students, right? On, on page 10, you mentioned that. And if I may continue the metaphor here, I would like to hear a little bit more about the intellectual and physical right, infrastructure that is present or needed for world, cl- uh, world literature classrooms to function as delivery systems. And um or you know what what's the 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 infrastructure necessary to create these flexible spaces where prejudices anxieties ethnocentric proclivities can be productively engaged with
1: yes absolutely yes and and what is what has also always been interesting to me and what part of kind of like also shaped this this first chapter is uh there is that right very famous uh David Damrosch' definition of world literature, right? What is world? What, what counts as world literature? Well, world literature is a text that circulates beyond its culture of origin, and and kind of like this this uh, this idea of circulation has really become foundational, right, in defining what counts as world literature. And what I always found fascinating is that 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 concept of circulation uh, was seldom extended to uh the classroom, right? In other words, the classroom as as part of that delivery network, right? Uh where books circulate, right, from a, a translated across cultural contexts, and they are delivered, you know, kind of like the class, they find their way into this kind of space, which is the classroom, right? So if we took look at kind of like circulation and these delivery networks, the, the classroom becomes you know part of that that space of circulation right it is a delivery network where uh the lives and worlds and cultures of others uh across national contexts are delivered to us uh, in the forms of of books and testimonies and films and and and, and graphic novels and so on and so forth um uh, and and uh so that's uh so that's basically what 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 started uh of course influencing uh this 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 very chapter and as of course as we begin to envision the classroom as a delivery network then we have to look at uh what uh you know kind of like the, the, the types of bodies or objects that get to be delivered in this network and so we can think of not just books and stories and films uh that that, that are delivered in this network but also uh faculty right many of us were not born in the United States or in North America. Uh, a lot of us are born uh, in, in many, you know, born in Kenya, have lived in other places. Uh, you have many comparative literature faculty who come from very diverse backgrounds. And so you have this delivery network, right, of faculty uh, stemming, right, from different regions in the world and finding their place uh, in this North American classroom. And then, of course, it's a delivery network also composed of both uh, domestic students, right? Either in-state or across various states in the country, uh, who are delivered through us, through the system, the economics and uh and cultural system of higher education. Uh, and then of course, you have international students similarly, right, uh, who are delivered to us. And and so you you have this kind of like interconnected delivery network that encapsulates. Uh, yes, the books stemming from different cultural t- contexts, you know, uh delivered in translation very often, right? Uh translation enables this process of delivery, uh, you know, the faculty and the students. And and uh the in 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 the that classroom, right, there's all this the encounter between all these all these kind of like bodies and people, right? Domestic students, international students, in-state students, out-of-state students, uh, a faculty coming from diverse backgrounds, uh, and uh, they're, they're uh, basically navigating this space, right? And as uh, very often what happens is as students, let's say, begin to tackle a given text, a work of literature, uh, uh they read it of course as I've said through their own experiences through their own backgrounds uh and as often happens as students also uh project their own prejudices their own biases onto the works of literature that they read uh uh you know they, they the faculty member uh depending on his or her background can also capitalize on that background in order to maybe uh uh shed light on such prejudices uh, sometimes you know as i say learning can be very painful where uh students who over a sudden and discovered that uh uh you know the background or the history behind some of the problematic statements that they make in class right you know the the structures of or of violent kind of like history that's connected to some of the statements uh, or biases that they may have vis-a-vis certain people, texts, uh, or even simply, you know, as I show in my chapter, the way a given work is 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 uh, has been uh, packaged for delivery. Uh, one of the things that that I talk about in this very chapter is uh, a book by Samuel Salvon Sel- called "The The Lonely Londoners," and uh, in that book, Samuel Salvon, you know, kind of describes to uh so it's not that Samuel Seven uh copies a specific uh, let's say, you know, Jamaican English, you know, Jamaican Pigeon English or 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 Caribbean dialect, right? You know, from uh Antigua Barbados or whatever, you know, and and you know, kind of like strictly ideas to that form of English and and uh you know in his text. But he so uh what he does is he doesn't write necessarily in let's say uh standard british english neither does he write in uh in in that other english instead what he does is he attempts to recreate an english in his novels that that approximate uh the caribbean uh english the varieties of caribbean english that gets to be heard in the immigrant Settings that he talks about in his novel, uh, the lonely Londoners in the space of, of of London, and and kind of like migrant communities uh, that 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 populate that region from various parts of the Caribbean, uh, and so it and 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 he he does a wonderful job at kind of like recreating this language that and, and recrea- recreating in its own way and in more simplistic way, some of the uh, the syntax of. Of an English right that sounds Caribbean, but it's not quite right We're in you know a syntax that with a syntax that sounds Caribbean but it is is more intelligible or can be read easily by uh by the uh by the reader and so my students I noticed were really hostile to his style uh they were really hostile to uh uh to uh even later on when uh when actually I, I incorporated some of the works and poetry of Linton Kwesi Johnson uh I noticed that and and you know he uh you know he writes in in and and, and recites his poetry in pidgin english and they were really hostile to this different variety of english and I realized that, oh, yes, of course, this is, you know, obviously part of what we talk about in world literature and the, the influence of translation as an act of domestication, right? You know, that there is a process of flattening out stylistic differences. Uh, I mean, this doesn't always, obviously, some of the best translators do a wonderful job at at, at recreating, right? You know, uh, in a different ways, in, uh you know some of the cultural differences in the, into the target language in very innovative ways, uh, but in some sometimes there is a, a, a an effect of flattening out, right? Where uh, a text uh, was it Spivak who talks about when a uh, 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 a woman writing from Palestine and someone writing from let's say uh, an Aboriginal, let's say you know let's say writing from Australia, uh, all sta- you know or you know or let's say someone writing from from China and, and another person writing from Japan when uh let's say you know the japanese text or the uh the text written let's say from uh, from uh, portuguese translated into english or so or swahili into english that when they're translated into english that there is a flooding in out where all these texts sound uh, you know the, the the aesthetics and the way the text reads they basically stylistically sound the same. Uh, and students had gotten used to this, this stylistic similarities. And so when they read Samuel Selvon's work uh, and they read this stylistic difference and, and they read it in, in, in this different patois, uh, they many of them were outraged. They were disturbed. Uh, some of them uh, made very problematic comments about the style. They, they, they really objected to it in very strong ways. And I realized, oh, well, yeah, they this text had, had been packaged, you know, right? This is circulation, right? And translational circulation. Uh, this text had been uh, packaged for delivery in a certain way that was some of the texts that they had read in translation in ways that were acceptable to them. But when they, once once they encountered a style, uh, where the, the the encounter with difference was not just in the content, right? So they were comfortable with, oh yeah, this cultural content is wonderful, and I love, you know, discovering other cultures. But when that difference also emerged in in the style of how something is writing, they were much more hostile to it. Uh, and and you know, so the you know difference in terms of form uh, was something that they uh, had a bigger issue with than difference in terms of content, and so I found that interesting. Uh, and so this is uh, something that I discuss, uh, you know, in uh, when we talk about delivery networks and deliverance uh, of texts and bodies. This, uh, you know, and we talk about the subject position of students and uh, how texts are translated and and how texts are, are packaged within these delivery networks. Uh, you encounter uh, you know such interesting conundrums, so that that occur in the space of the classroom, and it is my job at that point as a cultural mediator to enable my students to begin to reflect on their reactions and uh, and also analyze their reactions, especially in the space of a world literature class, and 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 use that to uh, specifically uh, talk about what's happening here, right? What what do their reactions epitomize? Uh, so that's uh you know so that's uh that's that, that's how i i came to think about it and and engage with that particular thing that's great chapter. and yeah. you know
0: as you you're mentioning um all of these details i also realized that it's so important um in most situations um and particularly in the classroom to uh have this co- question in mind right what are we reacting to or why do we feel irritated to uh, you know bu- By or about a specific um, text, or you know, what is it that uh, we're not attuned to, or you know, the the if the packaging is different, then you know, um, what what reactions can we can we see? And I think this stopping and reflecting also comes with a type of of analysis and a type of reading that slows a bit down, and you know, actually engages with with everything happening um in the classroom and you know in different situations um that in um you know from my point of view is very uh, productive um once you get out of the classroom or you get out of the situation or or so on um, and um you you know the, the, this idea as the introduction and the first memo right put put up the 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 stakes of the book in the second uh, memo we we get into even more details and um, you use a very interesting mm-hmm. word um, in the title, right? Syllabus- syllabusing. <laughs> yes, um, yes. Right? right, so syllabusing may be uh, ma- mapping Appalachian texts onto a world literature curriculum. And here you you directly point to the setting, right? The Appalachian setting uh, of your classes and uh, right the, the, the direct and comparative incorporation into world literature curriculum while paying close attention to the texts, right? And here we, we largely define, um, you know, the text um, and their circulation. So here I was very curious about the methods through which uh, this type of uh, syllabusing, I really love the word, uh, <laughs> encouraged, right? The incorporation mentioned earlier um, and also write about more more examples, uh, if you could give us some.
1: Yes. Uh, and so it, it occurred to me when, when I came to Shawnee State University, which is a, a public university uh, in, in southern Ohio, in Appalachia. And, and uh, quickly, obviously, uh, since my, my methodology was to really make visible my, not just my position as a teacher, my background and the background of my students, but also the institution in which this discussion was taking place, right? Because the classroom does not exist in a vacuum. The classroom is part of an institution uh, within a region. Uh, and, and, and as an Appalachian institution, uh, Shawnee State University had a mission. Uh, 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 and, and so that also had to be part of my classroom reflections. And so many of my students were from, uh, indeed the Appalachian region in the United States. and one of the things that, uh, obviously, as, as I said before, if you look at the classroom as, or at that setting as kind of like this delivery network, uh, you know, incorporating students, you also have to look at the background of these students. Where do they come from? And how does their background influence how they read these texts? Uh, and similarly, how do, uh, how can I capitalize on their background in order to create uh, uh, specific types of connections, uh, develop specific types of insights about the readings that, that we're engaging in the classroom. Uh, and so just to step back a little bit, you know, before going on to the question of syllabusing, uh, one of the things that we actually discussed in order to solve the impasse about reading uh, uh, text written in, in Creole, read it in, in, you know, in Caribbean English, uh, and, and talking about different varieties of English that that and permutations of the English that exists around the world, uh, was also to talk about uh the stigmatized Appalachian dialect of the region. And my students realized that, oh yeah, oh my God, what am I doing? I, you know, they came from uh a background and at home they code-switched, some of them code-switched. Uh, and spoke in particular ways using, you know, you know, uh, a specific Appalachian dialect at home. And when they came to the university, uh, this educational setting, uh, many of them had been shamed. Uh, interesting, even in an Appalachian context, but have been made to feel ashamed about some of the ways in which they spoke at home, right? And so it's not just that they hyper-corrected themselves in academic context, but they also sought sometimes to also police other varieties of English that existed across national contexts. And so the moment we started talking about, oh yeah, uh, uh, you know, cultural capital, language, hierarchies of language, symbolic violence and so on and so forth. And, and, and their own experiences, uh, in the ways in which their own varieties of English had also been policed, and how they were doing the same thing to the text. Uh, then it became a fantastic discussion uh, and that discussion was had because i was able to capitalize on the on appalachian background and so similarly it occurred to me that oh well you know this is uh this background and this this space of appalachia is something uh that that needs to become important at least the cornerstone of this project if it has to work effectively uh and so this is where uh kind of like the notion of syllabusing uh comes into play uh because i think uh you know when we think about designing kind of like a syllabus therefore as as uh a, a, as a theoretical exercise as as part of the ways of engaging with theories emerging from the discipline of comparative literature where uh you know if you know as a comparatist uh I, i'm in the context of the classroom and my students come from Appalachia, and I'm designing a world literature syllabus, and I want to include Appalachian uh, comparative analysis, right, uh, or points of comparison between certain elements in Appalachia and certain things discussed in Texas, you know, in, let's say, googie yongos work, and and so on and so forth. What are uh, some of the ways of of comparing, of of engaging with, you know, between Appalachia and all these other national and cultural contexts, right? How do I create a conversation uh, that navigates the space, the Appalachian space in which students find themselves in and these other texts, right? And uh, so this is kind of like an act of comparison that that I've launched for myself. And I am attempting to resolve this, this question uh, in the process of designing my syllabus, when I, I look at text and I say, okay, you know, this, this particular text I think has resonance with this topic that emerges in Appalachia, uh, and I think we can make these connections, and my students uh, can have interesting readings and points of comparison to make between Appalachia and this cultural setting or this other national setting, and so on and so forth, right? So at that moment, as I'm designing my syllabus and selecting texts and jettisoning other texts, uh, that I think are more some more appropriate, some less appropriate. Uh, I'm engaging in a theory, comparative theoretical exercise, right? That uh, so that is that you know that is uh, so w- that is what basically syllabusing means. It's it's thinking about the process of designing a syllabus uh, in order to achieve certain learning outcomes as a theoretical exercise where you are forced to navigate and engage with uh, certain theories that exist in the discipline of comparative theory, theories with translation. What translation do I include? Which ones do I not, right? Uh, do I include some salvo, or do I include other types of texts? Uh, and so this is uh, uh, this is what I did. This is what I'm exploring in this text. One of the things that I noticed uh, when I came to Appalachia was, and as I dug into, be, in, into the history of the region, its culture and so on and so forth uh was uh i was immediately greeted with stereotypes about the region uh and uh one of the stereotypes long held stereotypes about the region is uh the narrative of isolated homogeneity right you know that Appalachia is this supposedly homogeneous space uh that is rural right and that is uh, also isolated from the rest of the world, you know, that, you know, oh, you know, they don't like outsiders here. This is just this this isolated space, you know, they don't have, you know, you know. And so uh, when you're thinking, you know, David Damroche's definition of world literature, what is a world literature text? It's a text that circulates across its culture of, of origin. And and when you're thinking, well, how do I incorporate maybe Appalachian texts or readings into a world literature curriculum, at first sight, right, a priori, you would think that, oh, no, this is impossible because of, you know, obviously, if if this is a culture that is just isolated and homogeneous, in what way can it possibly fit into these global dynamics of translation and circulation? Where is the fit? And, And one of the things that I quickly noticed is that I had to really, one by one, but also by reading, a lot of Appalachian authors who have disputed these stereotypes was to acknowledge really the rich history of the region, uh, a, a, a history that's extremely multicultural, that's full of stories of uh, migration and immigration. Right, Italian Americans, uh, who people migrant workers who came from Italy and, and set, uh, and other people that and that, that that settled. In the Appalachian region, and uh, African Americans, obviously, who who are also part Afrilachians, uh, if you will, were also part of App- Appalachian culture. And the more I dug into it, the more I saw. Oh, wait, no this this is not an isolated place as it first seemed to be. And then this, uh, then the more I read into it, the more I also discovered uh, what was called the kind of like colonial model of Appalachian studies where a lot of Appalachian activists would actually read Franz Fanon. They would read postcolonial Albert Mimi, They would read postcolonial authors. And they said, hey, you know, it's interesting how post-colonial authors talk about how our, you know, they are, you know, like Gugu Ationgo talks about how, you know, the, the politics of language in African literature and how, uh, you, know, uh, you, know, you know, Gikuyu and Luo uh, tended to be really uh, marginalized in colonial settings and, and, you know, especially vis-a-vis English. Uh, and they would say, hey, it's interesting, you know, the same thing happened in educational settings in Appalachia. Or they would say, they would talk about Appalachia as an internal periphery or internal colony of the United States. Or they would say, hey, you know, we are also being exploited for our, national resor- for our natural resources, called." And other resources, and you know the places that are the most exploited. Right, think about you know subten regions of West Virginia that the most exploited for coal are also the most impoverished. Right, uh, so it's not like that wealth stays, but it actually, uh, you know, the the people benefiting from it uh, are not the people living in the direct vicinity. Right of those coal mines. Right, uh, it, those are not the people really benefiting. Uh, you know, from that the, the rich extraction of those natural resources, and they said, "Hey, there, there's something. It's not the same thing, but there's a way we can identify with postcolonial authors uh, who talk about exploitation of natural resources and so on and so forth, right?" And so, to me, I, I was saying, "Hey, you know what? When we talk about influence and circulation, the works of Googie, of, of of Fanon and Albert Memmi and other postcolonial authors, they traveled." within Appalachia, and they influence Appalachian activists who decided to make sense of their own realities, right? And and so this is how I kind of like incorporated it within, uh, as I was syllabusing my syllabus, right? You know, creating, saying, okay, how do I connect my students' background to some of these texts? How do do I make interesting comparative connections? These are some of the ways that I found uh strategies that i found of doing that right so this is part of the the syllabus thing that i'm talking about right which is you know uh, as a as a cultural mediator as a comparatist right how do i take my uh students background uh and capitalize on, on that background and their experiences in that cultural setting in order to create interesting points of connection with some of the texts uh that that uh we are discussing uh, basically, and sometimes enabling them to see the self in the other, uh, while also discovering cultures and traditions. Absolutely. That are not their
0: own. Yeah. And of course, um, you know, that um, while, you know, it sounds very, very fluent and, you know, very erudite, the way you're putting it also has um, and it doesn't. Uh, withdraw from it but you know it also has its own pitfalls right and there are some uh, some some delicate balancing that that you had to do and that appears i think best in the third memo right in pedagogies of cultural translation debating polygamy war and patriotism in comparative literature class so i think here you he actually walk us through a very uh, delicate, a very sensitive road. And, you know, you, you provide pedagogical strategies for avoiding or working through these um, pitfalls of homo- homogenizing reading practices. Um, and, you know, you, you mentioned this before. Uh, and also, you know, there's some sort of pendulation that happens between assimilating foreign works in ways that would erase, right, the traces right through translation sometimes that erase uh, the traces of their differences uh, and on the other hand, exoticizing their otherness um, in a fashion that would make them even, in, you know, incomparable or incommensurable, or you know. So here, I, I just, um, you know, well, well, I found it very, very interesting and kind of complementing uh, the second memo. I would like to to um, ask you to mention more uh, of the the implications and the strate- uh, the pedagogical strategies that uh, enable this balancing. Uh,
1: Yes, yeah, yes, absolutely. You're right. So yes, there is a a, a subtle uh, and and really delicate balancing that one has to do between. Uh, you want to enable students to to be able to compare, right, and to, to sometimes see themselves in the other, uh, but also you don't want kind of like all uh, works in, in in you know that they study to just be assimilated, uh, you know, kind of like within uh you know what they are familiar with right where everything becomes about the students and themselves and their own realities right uh and 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 where you know there is no difference between uh you know uh you know basically that that foreign work is assimilated within their own cultural norms and 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 and, and points of references right in ways that erases uh The difference or the otherness of that work you don't want that to happen right and then on the other hand you don't want them obviously to uh to to be like oh this is this is just such a strange and alien culture you know it's like it might as well come from mars like these people are so weird right so you don't want them to do that and obviously we, we all encounter this in our classroom right sometimes in funny ways you know like uh you know so many people teaching world literature uh, you know I teach also a lot of classes on black transnationalism, and I always chuckle right when uh you talk you, you, you teach you talk about you know uh uh blacks in france you know and uh you know black immigrants in france and a student writes an essay talking about you know black immigrants in France and referring to them as african americans and you 're like what are you doing <laughs> you know or you know or reading M. S. and you know or or reading, you know, Googie Wat Young and referring to Googie at you know young or or a Kenyan author uh who is you know you know not from the United States. You know, Googie is more complicated in terms, you know, he's he has, he lives in the United States, but other authors stemming from black authors stemming from different uh uh national and cultural context, and they take kind of like this term that's very u s american specific and then they're like, Oh yeah, that author from Kenya major Mwangi, and you know that african American author like major Mwangi is like major Mwangi is no he's he's, he's Kenyan, no he's uh he's not American you know <laughs> uh, and, and and so yeah you know so they they are always these gestures that uh that the students have in in just domesticating uh in the terms they use domesticating works uh constantly uh within kind of like their uh what they know the terms that they use and even when talking about uh multiculturalism right the language of multiculturalism is in the united states is not universal right multiculturalism in kenya looks and sounds and the terms we apply for Kenyan multicultural politics are very different from U.S. American multicultural politics, right? Uh, or in South Africa, and ju- just this per semester, we're talking about South Africa, and a student started talking about Black South Africans as minorities, and I had to say, "Wait, no, um, no, no, these are uh, no, that's no, wait, like look at no, the term minority doesn't apply here to Black South Africans. No, it's the opposite, uh, and and so." uh so yes that that specific chapter has to do with uh you know th- those are just funny anecdotes you know things that 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 occur time and time and again uh but sometimes it it becomes much more uh you know much more systematic and, and much bigger in, in uh not just the terms they use but also how they decide to uh, uh to read some of these texts and uh yeah so in that specific chapter I develop strategies for attempting to engage and, and and navigate that. And one of the one of the things that I do that I do talk about in the chapter is uh you know, as as Gatrich Spivak says, is making the import of the translators' choices much more visible, right? So uh not uh because most of the text that you are reading uh unless it's a graduate seminar or Uh, or an advanced class where students have proficiency, typically uh, in your regular uh, general education, world literature class, uh, these are texts that are basically read in translation. Uh, And and there are the pitfalls of translation where some translation choices, right, where students, even as they read in translation, are really unaware of some of the translation choices that have been made, Uh, uh, the ways in which the text has been, packaged and domesticated for them, right? For their own tests, right? In order to create meaning uh, from, you know, within their own kind of like cultural perspective. Uh, and so one of the things that I've sometimes done is uh, just, uh, you know, something that occurred by accident in, in this particular chapter is uh, finding, uh, accidentally assigning a short story by uh, Emil Zola, written by Emil Zola to students, That had been translated, that that you know, an an infamous, rather horrible translation of one of Emile Zola's short stories, where the translator was really unhappy with uh, the ending of Emile Zola's short story, uh, "The Attack on the Mill," uh, and decided, you know, or he that, that 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 he had to change the ending in order to. Abide by U.S. American sensibilities. Uh, It was really an anti-war story, right? It problematizes kind of like celebrations, jingoistic celebrations of war. And so, you know, the translator had failed the need to change the ending. Uh, And when I discovered that, oh my God! I, oh, this is interesting. I assigned (laughs) this horrible translation. You know, sometimes the beginning of the semester, and you're searching for a translation, you find. A wonderful free translation online. You think you're sparing your students, and you say, "Yes, uh, you know this is this is what I'm going to give them." And then you realize, "Oh my God, this uh, this is not the translation I wanted to give them." Uh, but instead of telling them, "Oh no, don't read this; read a different translation," I saw this as an opportunity, specifically to make translation more visible. Hey, let's talk about this translation uh I, I have done this in other settings uh for example uh when talking about uh the 1001 nights uh with its uh, so many translations available for that uh and uh this, this you know Borges, uh has written this essay about right the translation of the 1001 nights where he talks about just the interesting he gives an interesting analysis of of the cultural politics of these different translations uh but i I have often uh given my students different translations of those similar stories and sometimes would just set the stories side by side and just look at a given passage a paragraph right sometimes a page within those stories and just close read kind of like the different translation choices that that uh that 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 have been made uh you know the different iterations right you know that 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 emerge from that text so you know uh that's that's one way of you know making the import of the translation choice uh, of the import of the translator and the tra- and translation choices more visible uh just uh you know assigning students you know different iterations of the same text and saying okay let's uh you know uh what what are some of these differences and and how do we explain them right and and uh translation is never neutral right so what are some of the politics of this type of translation versus this and that other one uh and and uh i think that enables them to become much more acutely aware A, of how uh you know text gets to be domesticated for them that how translation is not neutral uh uh but also how how them as readers right uh how the texts are packaged for them and how you know what are the ethics of then you know reading particular types of translations uh you know what is what are their responsibilities as readers right uh in terms of the, the the translations that they select uh uh and 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 uh you know and and the awareness of of the translator right the translator at that point becomes much more visible uh, so that's uh uh you know that's uh you know that that way they don't you know they're constantly aware of the difference you know by highlighting issues of translation they're con- constantly aware of 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 the the difference the processes through which that text is domesticated for them uh yeah. So yeah. yeah,
0: absolutely, and I think this is a very important uh, point, um, specifically when we're teaching the word literature, and you know, when even you know, and in, in, in different settings in North America, right? We're teaching Chinese literature, Brazilian literature, and so on. Um, right. The the accessibility that we get through translation or not, right? It's it's an important topic to to bring to bring up and discuss with with all students. Um, and I think we, we continue uh, with with this idea of, of designing and picking, designing syllabi and, and picking uh, texts, um, but with, with a little bit of difference, right? In the fourth memo, um, uh, we're back to syllabusing, right? But mapping Appalachian uh, queer texts into a comparative literature curriculum. And, and here you, you make the case for the inclusion of Appalachian spaces and realities into comparative literature classes but by reading in tandem um, uh, queer anti-urban responses from Appalachia to um, and then comparing these and reading them in tandem with metronormative depiction of uh, the, uh, LGBTQ spaces and methods employed by Kenyan artists uh, and activists to substantiate their position against neo-colonial depictions of queer spaces and people on the African continent. So uh, here, um, I was particularly interested, um, you know, in the the challenges when working on this type of curriculum, and how does the work presented in in the fourth memo reinforces the book's proposal for comparative uh, literature discipline itself?
1: Yes, uh, and so uh, yes, keeping with the the Appalachian, uh, you know, setting of the classroom. Uh, I was regularly teaching a a class titled Comparative uh, Queer Theory and and, and Literature uh, during my years at Shawnee State University. And once again, uh, uh, I I had many LGBTQ students in my class uh, and 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 many of them from the Appalachian region. Uh, And uh, one of the things that I wanted to do as I was in the habit of doing was to also, as they were reading queer texts uh, across national and cultural contexts uh to enable them to make points of comparison uh with also queer texts written by appalachian authors and and i quickly uh, obviously found uh some interesting similarities uh as i was uh looking at uh let's say uh this uh kenyan uh, uh, queer a uh, text called uh, "Stories of Our Lives." It was actually first uh, uh, a book, then it was made into a movie, and it's it's basically a collection of stories by uh, uh, of of basically queer queer folk in Kenya uh, who uh, it it was an attempt to make them much more visible and to document the the heterogeneity of the queer experience in Kenya and uh as i was uh looking at at uh, the interviews uh by the authors and the members of the nest collective uh uh the nest collective which is the group that basically is behind this project uh one of the things that i noticed was they were complaining as they became much more famous uh and as their work acquired this not just domestic but international recognition uh in its ability to uh document the multiplicity of LGBTQ experiences in Kenya. Uh one of the uh things that they would be constantly asked was, oh well, you know, are you, you know, where are you based? You know, are you are you still based in Nairobi? Are you still based in Kenya? And 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 they would say, yes, I'm based in Kenya. And you know they they very often uh they would think why why are you returning to that country? Why do you live there, right? Don't you just want to escape and live in North America? You know, why are you going back to that, quote unquote, backward place, right? Was the subtext of some of those questions, right? Uh, why Why do you, you know, why, you know, you know, okay, fine. You know, it's okay for you to talk about queer existence and its multiplicities in Kenya. But we assume that, you know, there's no hope for you. You know, you're just so marginalized there. You know, why, you know, you know, just come and, you know, and 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 live in, in, in Western Europe or just come and live in North America. And uh there was uh the more I dug into it, the more I realized that there was increasingly this narrative uh where uh queer communities uh in Kenya and in other parts of the African continent were mostly seen as victims waiting to be saved uh by their more enlightened Anglo-Euro, you know, Euro-North American or Western European counterparts, right? Uh, And uh, they could only exist in their eyes as victims, not as people who lived in challenging situations, right? That attempted to forge and sometimes successfully uh, queer spaces uh, for themselves in those places, right? And who attempted to, to challenge uh, discourses of homophobia and heteronationalism, right? That that permeated their own local context. In other other, other words, they 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 attempted to actualize some sense of agency and, and fight back and create spaces uh for themselves. Uh, uh, but that 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 perspective was always ignored, right? You know, because uh there's a prevailing enduring idea of kind of Kenya as as part of this dark continent right this dark african continent that is always out of step with this idea of modernity including kind of like more contemporary ideas about equality fairness including kind of like uh uh, not just uh you know sexual equality uh and, and and lgbtq equality right you know that you know if we are here right you guys you know, you always you always expect it to be behind, right? And they therefore, because of that backwardness, right. right, there can be no queer spaces, or successful queer spaces that exist there, right? And we can only highlight kind of like negative stories of incensed. Uh, hor- of course, homophobia exists there, like it exists in the United States, and there's violence that exists there, like in the United States. Uh, but that is it it's it's a reductive way of only seeing things through that lens, never acknowledging that there are also interesting transformations uh in terms of queer identities that are occurring, occurring in those spaces and so I noticed right when i was I was looking at kenya uh that the same exact thing goes on in in among appalachian uh uh uh, 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 uh lgbtq spaces right the the ways of thinking of Appalachia is as this rural, rural isolated backward place out of step with modernity in a very similar way uh uh you know uh as as trump country right the places that that's intolerant where everybody votes for trump and where people are just uh quote unquote backward in the way that they think about uh uh sexuality and 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 and, and feminism and queer identity and so on and so forth that uh so the narrative has always been that you know you have kind of like a closeted rural appalachian uh uh queer uh person growing up uh who has to only find their liberation by moving to New York or san francisco right uh that's where they find that liberation that's where they can embrace finally their true identity right but in Appalachia they cannot exist, right? And and uh, what many, just like what many queer uh, communities were doing in Kenya, queer communities in Appalachia, similarly were contesting this prevailing narrative by saying, no, listen, yeah, there is bigotry. There is homophobia. There are all those kinds of things. There is that violence that exists in Appalachia as it does in New York and other places. Uh, and, and there is, yes, your Christian fundamentalists, right, who many of them are sometimes very uh, uh, homophobic as well. Uh, however, there are also queer communities here and queer spaces that are being formed, and there is pushback, and and gay pride parades exist throughout the Appalachian region. Uh, and, and so I, I noticed that it was something very similar, right? The way of framing Appalachia as this backward uh, region outside of modernity Uh, was really similar to, uh, especially in terms of the existence of queer spaces, was similar to the ways in which, uh, you know, many queer spaces uh, in Kenya, right? You know, the reception of stories of of our lives uh, was being framed, right? And the ways in which kind of like the Nest Collective was attempting to then respond to that. Uh, And so, yes, so once again, uh, I was using... uh, uh, this idea of syllabusing in order to uh, incorporate theories of queer anti-urbanism, right, that that many uh, uh, queer scholars and activists in Appalachia have used uh, as a way to make their spaces much more visible and connecting it with uh, queer uh, post-colonialism, right, you know, that is used with many uh, activists on the African continent, specifically in Kenya in this example, uh, and and comparing them side by side and relating them to one another, uh, in ways that really, uh, many of my Appalachian students uh, uh, that's found great. to be exciting. That's,
0: that's That is very exciting. And, um, you know, speaking, speaking of that, we're, we're getting to the fifth memo, which was my favorite uh, memo so far, uh, you know, uh, for many reasons. But, you know, uh, called Monstrous Encounters in Outer Space, a Pedagogic Analysis of Star Trek's Racial Politics from a Comparative Perspective. And here you know the figure of the marginalized populations and the treatment they are subjected to appears in a different light since myself I'm interested in, in marginalized communities and you know the, the treatment they 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 receive uh, you know that was one reason for which I, I it was my favorite um but um you know I uh, I'll not elongate the question this time around but rather invite you to tell us more about the ways in which racial politics right that I have been at the basis of, of you know um of thinking and you know have been uh, brought up so far in our conversation um, but the, the the ways in which radical uh, racial politics can be productively engaged from a comparative vantage point in the classroom
1: yes absolutely uh i uh, I, I the the idea for this class which found my way in its way in in, in one of my memos uh stemmed from the uh the realization that uh uh uh, some of my honor students were Trekkies and and, and loved Star Trek, um, and, and I am a Trekkie myself. And I thought, well, well <laughs> this is perfect—an entire semester of talking about Star Trek. Uh, and so, of course, I, I, I decided I would I would I would I would create a, a, a Star Trek class. But I am also first and foremost a comparatist, so uh, my way of studying Star Trek was from. Uh, a comparative uh, uh a comparative literature perspective and uh and at the time that i was designing this class uh this was uh immediately in the aftermath of the 2016 uh presidential election and uh there was also uh uh, uh people had woken up just shell shocked uh uh, uh many of my students came in class crying. Uh, I remember in the aftermath of the election, uh, there was uh, this really enduring uh, sense of of despair. And then what followed in the aftermath with uh, the Muslim ban and so on and so forth. Uh, And as I was, all these things were going on as I was designing the syllabus for my Star Trek class, and I said, well you what I'm going to do is uh, I am going to use Star Trek in order to respond to these times in order to allow my students and enable us to make sense of these times and 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 to uh because for them it was this sense of despair and 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 danger was quite new right you know they they always knew that these uh ethno nationalist forces always existed in their country." But at least for many of them, there was this deceptive idea of, or narrative of progress, right? Oh, yes, we had the civil rights, and then we had, you know, Stonewall, and then, you know, and, you know, and we have this kind of like uh, momentum, this arc of justice, right? And where everything becomes better and better and better, and we are never going to go back, right? And sure, we don't live in a perfect place, but, you know, things uh, always get, Better, right? You know, and obviously we know that that's not how history functions, and you know, and uh, anyone who's you know studies the, you know the, the Civil War and Reconstruction and and post Reconstruction and you know uh, knows that no, no, that's uh, that's that's not how things have often played in this country. Uh, but but this was, uh, and of course, for uh, one of the things also is that for many of us faculty who are international. Of course, we know that things don't go in a straight line because many of us, some of us come from countries where we have experienced, uh, you know, political terror, right? Where we have have had experiences with the dictatorship, right? Where we have had more uh, direct experiences with some of these things that uh, our students, right, are now just coming to grips with, uh, you know, in the aftermath of, of the, the 2016 election. Uh, and and uh and, and and so in in uh so this this I, I also kept this in mind uh as I was talking to students as as many of them uh just came to my office hours just for for comfort, right? You know, because they were just so shaken and and, and, and uh just uh needed to talk through what was happening. Uh and so I kept this in mind as I was designing uh, this, uh, this syllabus. Now, of course, uh, uh, we know kind of like the premise of, of, of Star Trek, right? Uh, I decided just for the sake of, uh, I mean, this was a hard choice. What, what, what Star Trek do I use? And this is one semester. It is impossible to incorporate, uh, uh, Deep Space Nine, the Next Generation, Star Trek Voyager, all the iterations of Star Trek with all the interesting dimensions. You know, I, I had, I think, for the sake of the course, I had to choose one Star Trek, uh, and so I said, okay, uh, uh, i it, It's like choosing your favorite child. Okay, you know, <laughs> I, I, I will, I will choose the Next Generation. Uh, uh, you know, and uh, and just focus on the Next Generation just for. Uh, you know, for the sake of of ease, right? You know, of manageability about how much my student, how much Star Trek can my students watch in a semester. Uh, so I, I chose the next generation, uh, and uh, uh, what was fascinating was, of course, the the premise of Star Trek, right? The uh, the idea that you know, at least in the next generation, uh, where you have uh, you know the 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 United Federation of of planets. Uh, which presents this really utopic society where mankind or humanity has overcome some of their uh you know kind of like their worst instincts and created this much more equitable, equitable, you know, post-capitalist society, right? You know, that has done away with capitalism, that has done away with uh with patriarchy, and you know, that has done away with with homophobia, that has done away with with uh uh uh, with uh with in, with with income inequality right you know with 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 poverty and so on and so forth right and you know so you have the vision of you know this is how an ideal society can look like you know and it is when you know jean luc picard and the others go uh you know in various worlds that they encounter uh other beings uh in other planets uh that uh harken back to the way humanity used to be, right? Uh the way they, you know, you know, so you have, you know, obviously the Cardassians and the uh, you know, and the Klingons, you know, who uh, you know, they are more, you know, kind of like our warlike past, you know. Uh, you know, and you have uh the Ferengi, uh, you know, with a reference to, you know, our more kind of like mercantile and and capitalist and you know, greed is good and that aspect of humanity. You know, so to discover alien subjects, right, is to is an exploration of, of humanity as it exists today, uh, in juxtaposition to humanity as like what we could become, right? You know, so the world of the Federation is always juxtaposed to uh, the backwardness of these people and their civilizations that look like what humanity used to be or what you know, how they used to behave and so i said okay you know this this is an interesting premise right you know to to explore uh and ob- obviously the the other aspect of, of of star trek from a comparative perspective uh is also uh you know and, and from a post colonial perspective is uh uh this idea of of encounter right encounter with difference encounter with aliens uh you know we are talking about multiculturalism but on an intergalactic kind of like uh plane uh and and so uh you know what are some of the the politics of of cultural encounters you know so we uh you know you know where does the idea of the prime directive come from right the idea that oh you know you you, know, you do no harm uh you don't want to destabilize a different civilization you don't want to engage in their affairs you know you you know you want you know, you, you know uh, you want to engage with them in a particular way, right? Uh so when my students, let's say, uh, would read episodes of Star Trek about cultural encounters in which the issue of the prime directive comes into play. And then they would say, Okay, you know, so let's look at, you know, Jolie Picard, you know, wrestling with this idea of the prime directive, and then let's look at these various colonial encounters with uh you know, Bartolome de las Casas right, writing about the destruction of the Indies, right? Uh let's compare, right, you know, that, you know, the history of humanity and, you know, this utopic idea of the prime directive, right, and its problematics, right? Uh let's talk about uh you know uh Wallace O Inca's Death and the King's Horseman and compare it to this uh, uh this other story in Star Trek, that is very, actually really similar to Soinka's play, right, where similarly there is a different society that has a different culture, uh, uh, and addition, different tradition surrounding death and suicide, right, and and uh, uh, you know, and and that, in fact, uh, you know, I haven't discovered, but, you know, I've always wondered, uh, did the writer read Soinka before, before writing, because the, the two are really similar, and so as I watch kind of like episodes of Star Trek, my comparative brain is making all these connections to Wallace Oenka, to Bartholomew de las Casas, uh, to uh even uh Emile Zola's Jacques, right? You know, the Dreyfus affair in France, and all these different examples of stories uh that on the internment of Japanese Americans. So I'm making kind of like connections to these things and incidents in human history that have occurred both in our present and in our past right and this i found to me was a really ideal way of thinking about our present moment where students could say oh wait a minute okay this this you know we find kind of like on reading through these permutations and morphologies of fascism and ethno-nationalism and intolerance right uh you know and and by you know they could uh you know isolate some of the uh rhetorical strategies used by people to really justify uh the marginalization of people either kind of like you know in the case of the Dreyfus affair right uh the figure of the Jew in the European imagination as someone who cannot be trusted right uh they could relate that to oh wait you know okay you know we have the figure of the muslim right here, someone whose citizenship is always questioned. Uh, you know, you have to have extreme vetting, right? You know, uh, and uh, uh, they could relate that to, oh my God, like, okay, at this point in time, you had Japanese Americans uh, who were interned, right? You know, uh, at this moment in history. Uh, and and so they could really begin to make these interesting connections, Uh 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 you know with these stories from star trek and kind of like the story for from star trek you know the the star trek stories kind of like really landed themselves really well to these kind of like comparative gestures uh where they you know uh because you know part of you know at the end of each episode you have jean-luc picard kind of like giving a lesson and saying, you know, uh, uh, you know, well, you know, this is what the episode means, you know, for lack of a better word, and 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 some of those lessons in each of those stories, uh, as much as we also talked about the problematics between some of the visions of Star Trek, but some of those lessons were not just specific to one historical period, right? You know, so when we talked about the Dreyfus Affair or the internment of just Japanese Americans, we see the same rhetorical justifications for margin, marginalizing people we identify some of the same patterns right some of the same steps are uh, being taken in order to take, scapegoat people who are different right and this allows them uh this changes it simply from oh let's look at what happened in the past but also kind of like this gives them insights into what is happening in the present right and how we can more effectively arm ourselves in terms of engaging with uh with with contemporary uh iterations right of some of these really old things that seem you know seem to happen time and time and again in uh you know in you know across national contexts and and across historical periods yeah uh, and so that's uh that's how I taught uh, Star trek from a comparative perspective to to deal with the aftermath of the the two thousand sixteen presidential election, uh as uh, as we were all really absolutely terrified uh about uh about what was happening and sure, we're trying sure. to grapple and make yeah, sense. Yeah, ab-
0: absolutely. Of and I think um trying to make sense of, of reality, right? It's actually a good phrase to use for <laughs> for the immediate moment afterwards. Um Right. And um, I think obviously that that helped with the with the grounding, but also helped in, in trying to, uh, you know, understand also larger uh, periods of time, larger events. Right. And, and and the world as it was, and as as is. And, you know, that that also uh, speaks and, you know, we get to to the last memo um, speaks to the um, the, the experiences that our students and ourselves have when we go abroad, right? Like studying abroad and, and also community, engaging with the communities, either when you study abroad or, you know, in your own, um, you know, in your own setting. So um, in the last memo, uh, which is called Comparative Feminism and Social Justice, Instrumentalizing the Poetics of Asiyah Jabbar's The Wim, uh, Women in Pieces in Experiential Learning Courses. And here, you know, we see some pathways that you develop for amplifying community engagement, but also for intellectually exploring the study abroad spaces. Um, and I know, you know, with the pandemic and everything, that has been uh, revisited, right? Like what actually it meant. Um, but you know, at the time um, uh, when when uh, you know, I, I guess the book was in the making, right? Study abroad was also <laughs> different. So, um, you know, this, yeah, this actually brings us beyond the classroom um, in, you know, instrumentalizing or even just putting into experience what you've been um, you've been uh, telling us about so far. So, you know, here I was curious about some of the examples um, that that you can give us and, you know, the role played by genres. Right. Because you mentioned in the in the chapter, some of the graphic novels, short history, short stories, slam poetry right uh, the role that these genres played mm-hmm. right in the process uh, described right
1: mm-hmm. yes yes uh, so yeah they uh, uh i as i i felt this was a kind of like a, a nice last memo to end it with because uh in the, in the in kind of like in the, in the in the first uh in the in in the first you know few memos or in all the previous memos, I was really focusing on on classroom dynamics. Uh, but of course, I I, I wanted to just uh, you know also argue that that uh, when we talk about pedagogy, you know, first of all, uh, my I mean, the impetus for this project has always been not to see the classroom as this kind of like hermetically sealed space, right? That exist in isolation from the community. And that's what I did with syllabusing. That's what I did by talking about uh, uh, delivery networks and, and the communities where my students belong to and the larger Appalachian setting. Uh, and so the extension of that is also, well, you know, once we've identified and and talked about many of these uh you know and uh, many of these these issues and, and and historicized them uh we've talked about it's nationalism and so on and so forth, uh how do we uh how do we engage with them outside of the classroom? How do we use that to make sense of things that uh happen outside of the classroom? And uh, I have always uh for the past eight years I've often incorporated uh as uh a community engagement uh, uh aspect in my classes where uh whether I'm teaching a feminist class I uh, often uh, use a community partner where my students then get to uh, engage in some community project. It could be about uh, uh, soliciting funds and helping the women local women's shelter in a feminist feminist class, or uh, uh, talking about uh, rape culture and bystander awareness uh, on campus. Uh, but basically, taking what they've read uh and uh in an attempt to solve real world uh, well i hate the term real world problem you know in in terms of the way it's being used but in an attempt to solve problems that exist uh, uh in the world and in the communities that 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 really uh that that that's that surround them uh and so that is that's where uh that's 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 what this uh this this chapter is about and the chapter kind of begins with uh, uh, with this uh, really short story called "The Women in Pieces" by Asho uh which uh, basically is basically a reworking of the One Thousand and One Nights, uh, where there is a it was takes uh, place during the Algerian Civil War, and there is a teacher uh, that is kind of like teaching uh, the Knights, the Arabian Nights to her students. Uh, and she's teaching in the classroom uh about this tale about this woman uh who ends up uh you know because of her jealous husband being uh, cut up into pieces and then as she's talking about kind of like as the classroom grapples with the feminist message uh in this particular short story uh then guards suddenly come out right you know come into the classroom and uh decides to kill the teacher and actually kind of like behead her. And so the teacher herself, uh in Ashur Jabbar's short story, becomes the woman in pieces, right? And there is a parallel, just like, you know, when She right, uh uh, you know, uh tells her tales repeatedly night after night in order to keep herself alive. Uh there are often parallels between the stories that she's she tells and her own predicament in this context. You know, there's a parallel between uh, the stories that the students uh, are studying in class uh, and the predicament in the classroom, which is the violence that exists outside of the classroom, comes burging in, right, you know? And the students all of a sudden feel like, oh, wow, it's like the villains from this work of fiction that we've written have suddenly kind of like come alive. And and they are part of our classroom. They are there in flesh killing our teacher, Right. Uh, And, you know, just speaking about COVID, you know, uh, there have been times where we tend to think about, uh, once again, our classrooms as this uh, heterotopic space, right, in between uh, adulthood and childhood, right, where students uh, get to be nurtured, get to grow intellectually, that is semi-disconnected from the quote-unquote real world. Right, and then COVID happens, uh, and uh, that separation, right, uh, is no longer maintained. Right, you know when students have to exit their dorms and go back home, right, and they're kind of like zooming in from their homes, right. You know when COVID first appeared, right, they're back home and they're zooming in from their dorm. They're not their dorms, but some of them are back home, uh, and all of a sudden you notice, oh you know, uh, this person uh, is Zooming in from a mansion, from what I can see in the background, right? And this other student, right, is, uh, you know, kind of like in this one bedroom that uh, they share with uh, their family, right? You know, maybe of four people, right? And, you know, there is not enough space. There are people talking. They have to be in this corner as they are Zooming in in their class. And so, right, the world, the outside world, Really keeps crashing right in this virtual space, the outside world actually keeps crashing into the classroom and invades the classroom, and all the the inequalities that exist among our students become uh much more evident right as they zoom in, especially for those who opt not to kind of like you know uh you know black out their cameras like who show us the background or we don't use an artificial background. Uh, and so this reminded me when this was happening, and it reminded me of also Aisha Jabar and and oh my, you know, that you know the classroom is never this hermetically sealed space, that the violence that exists outside uh often comes crashing into and bearing on uh in one way or another on, on our students and how they engage with our text. And so uh part of uh uh what this chapter focuses on. Is in the same way that the students in uh, uh asjebach's short story uh basically felt like those characters from the works of fiction they were reading was coming alive were coming alive and 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 really manifesting themselves in the in, in flesh in the classroom when my students go in community engagement projects and let's say they read uh a poem. From Audrey Lord, or they read uh, uh, one of Audrey Lord's essays, or they read uh, uh, any of the short stories that I may ascribe, or any of the works of fiction, or uh, and so long essays that they take. Uh, that even the characters in these works of fiction, that they take the concepts and the stories that they read, and they allow these stories to live on through them and to enable them to make sense of the world that they encounter outside of the classroom as they engage in their community projects, as they tackle inequalities, and, and, uh, you know, as as they attempt to make sense, right, of of the complexity of structures of violence and oppression that exist outside, uh, and say, hey, you know, I noticed that this novel tackled ABCD uh, and 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 in interesting ways, you know, I noticed that you know, uh, beloved, beloved tackled this subject, or the bluest eye tackled this subject in this way, and I see kind of like manifestations of this concept tag- tackled in that novel by Toni Morrison uh, in this particular way, as I am volunteering in this particular setting, and by reading Toni Morrison, this gives me insights into how to engage with this community project successfully engage with this community project that I'm now tackling so that is basically uh, you know what i am doing here which is uh, you know basically enabling these stories these works to come alive in their community projects uh and uh, this obviously goes for you know i give one example also in uh, in study abroad settings where i talk about how this strategy is is really useful also you know just in in, in terms of study abroad pedagogy uh a, a couple of years ago when before covid-19 seems like ages uh when uh i taught a, a class in paris called uh, uh french hip hop and citizenship through the uh the kentucky institute for international studies and uh, it was a five week course uh entirely uh on place in paris uh, and uh I had my students read uh the work of a French poet called Grand corps Malade. and uh he's he's a slum poet who often thinks about uh uh the immigrant populated and often marginalized communities in the French banlieue or the French suburbs uh where you have the uh poly in incidences of police brutality. Uh, the highest rates of unemployment and so on and so forth, uh, and also where hip hop culture has really proliferated in significant ways, and so in 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 that poem, uh, Gonkoh Malad acts as a tour guide. He says, "Let me show you my Sanduni, the Saint-Denis that I know, right? Uh, with all its complexity, its good, its bad sides, its excitements. Let me talk about the people." Who live there, but not just talk about, it, but really humanize them in their complexity and the diverse cultural tapestry that they represent as, as part and parcel of, uh, of, 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 of Frenchness, right? Of, of this multicultural idea of what it means to be a French citizen. Uh, and so I wanted my students to examine and recognize the complexity of this uh, multicultural Dimension of French citizenship, one that was really exalted in this poem. And so I said, hey, here is, I translated the poem myself. It's a poem by Grand Corps Malade. He talks about Saint Denis. He talks about all these different areas in Saint Denis. So the poem will be your map. Uh, I'm going, we're going to land in Saint Denis and uh, we are going to discover every single place that the poet talks about. Uh, and so we had a map of Saint Denis, and we were going through it and the students I was of course with them, but they were leading right you know the 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 journey there they were looking at the poem, looking at the map, and say, "Oh okay, uh, you know so they were using the poem as a map right to to guide them through saint Denis uh, and what's wonderful with the poem is the poem also uh enables you to do kind of like that kind of uh, you know, a, a wonderful journey where, because the places uh, that are highlighted in the poem are also highlighted in chronological or, or in, in a specific type of order as you are going to one part of Saint-Denis to the other, right? So as you are going there, you can really, it enables you to really explore the place in, in a lot of depth. Uh, and so my students were using the poem to discover multicultural saint and uh you know le marché the le marché de Saint-Denis and, and all these different other places uh the stores where you have uh zouk music playing and and the uh you know they uh uh you know halal halal fried chicken store and all these different you know uh you know all these different places that exist in Saint-Denis uh, and uh uh they uh, they also had to really pay attention to the poem because there is one place in saint oni called, I think, La Place du Cake, where there are a lot of cell phone thieves. And uh, one of my students, who was just being a typical American tourist, just had his cell phone in the front pocket, just hanging out of there, just hanging there, loosely in the cell pocket, in the middle of the street, not looking at it. I'm like, why are you... I, I, anyway, and I had warned them about it. We had had like uh, trading about, you know, watch your belongings, watch your wallet. But anyway, in the poem, the poet, Grand Corrmalat, warns about La Place du Cacé and says, be careful at the Place du Cacé. You could get robbed at the Place du Cacé. Like, they are specifically cell phone thieves at La Place du Cacé. And so, they, as we're going to La Place du Caquet, uh this person clearly... Did not pay attention to the poem, and just like there was, a, you know, a thief that actually attempted to take the cell phone, and one of the other students came and like managed to thwart the thief's efforts, uh, and the thief like ran away. So it was quite dramatic, quite dramatic, right? This excursion, and everyone's like, "What happened?" It's like a thief tried to take my cell phone, and I was like, "Where are? Why? why where was the cell phone?" They're like in my front pocket. I was like, "Where are we?" Plus du cachet. What does the poem say? Pay attention to the cell phone thieves of the place du exactly uh, and and so it it became a wonderful guide to uh to really discover uh to discover uh sandnis but I think one of the most most important thing is that it is through that poem that they could also begin in ways that uh a a typical tourist might not be aware of the the poem also marked the passage of time because the poem was lit written 10 years earlier so they could say oh okay so these are the changes that, are, that have taken place so there's a place in the poem called le cafe culturel uh where the you know you have slam poets you have break dancing you have all these different things going on uh these community cultural events from the community that take place there and we went to discover the cafe culturel and it had now become a creperie, right, where people are just selling crepe. And they're like, oh my God, what happened to the cafe culturel? And as we kind of like dug into it, and uh, we were joined by a slam poet from Saint Denis called uh, Ami Karim. And Ami Karim was like, this is part of the process of gentrification. Many of the things that you see in the poem are not there because there is a gentrification process going on where rent is so expensive in uh, the center of Paris itself uh, that now you have middle-class Parisians wanting to come to Saint-Denis and displacing other people uh, uh, because they they find rent more affordable, which obviously, you know, so there's a process of gentrification and displacement that's going on. And so, you know, through that juxtaposition between the world described in the poem, that world kind of like which is a snapshot right an ephemeral snapshot of a moment captured in time 10 years ago you can clearly mark the passage of time and the politics of what has changed in that community right uh and now people are attempting to fight back that the gentrification that is going on uh and so it 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 uh i think the poem is not just as a map that guides them in Sandoni, but also uh, a way that enables them to uh, historicize the area in in ways that uh, they could not if they were just tourists, right? And so they live through the poem. They use the poem as guides, and uh, so that's the other example that 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 I use in this final memo, which is looking at how these comparative methods then get to extend beyond, uh, basically beyond the borders of the classroom. Uh, uh, and and apply to either community engagement or study abroad.
0: Sure, sure, sure. That sounds like a great trip. And actually, I'm going to check out the poem as well after the interview. <laughs> it, it's it's actually great. And um, you know, I I know I've I've taken a lot of your time. So I'm going to ask you about the conclusions. Um, but more um, because the conclusions bring us to the present institutional context you are in. And, you know, it's, uh, it has its own struggles and its own reckoning with the past, right? The, the institution itself. So, you know, I, I was curious about the the possibilities that this a new context um, where, where you started a new job at offers for the strategies and the lessons that you delineated in the memos and worked through um, at uh, the, 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 the other institution, right?
1: Yes yes uh yes so in my uh my conclusion yes uh uh I I uh, I talk about being in in my new institution I uh I work at Xavier University now uh and so after spending 8 years at Shawnee State I I, I left uh Shawnee, uh and, and to, to start working at Xavier University uh which has obviously it's it's on context it's on history, right, Cincinnati is different from Portsmouth, Ohio with its own history, uh, its own cultural traditions and so on and so forth. Uh, And uh, uh, part of what I'm trying to do is exploring how how I can capitalize on really the rich history and cultural Cincinnati and do the, the same kind of like structures of syllabusing that I did for for 8 years in, in 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 that Appalachian context right in uh in in Portsmouth Ohio uh and uh uh part of uh uh what I reiterate once again in my uh, in my conclusion is uh really making our places within the institutions that we occupy uh be much more visible because I, I think uh, you know, that's, that's what, you know, what, uh, basically my role as a critic is not just to, in an abstract way, uh, take a book, take a Kenyan novel and analyze it, uh, from this perspective, uh, but also talk about, uh, my own position as a teacher, uh, the ethics of teaching and pedagogy, uh, and my, how I instrumentalize my training as a comparatist in order to, uh, be a teacher, right? And there is an ethics to teaching, right? Uh, There is an ethics to the ethical questions about uh, how do I teach in ways that uh, counter uh, different forms of microaggression that students encountered, uh, both inside and outside the classroom, right? How do I create uh, a tolerant, a diverse space in my classroom? Uh, and, And outside, right? How do I... Better my community, right you know how do I take these concepts uh, that uh, I find so enlightening, so wonderful uh, for enabling me to understand the reality the world in which I live, and how do I apply them uh, in order not just to help my students but help my community at large right in community engagement uh and and and, and enable my community uh, to thrive uh, and that requires. Me to uh that requires my own position, my subjectivity to be visible, uh, the nature of my institution to be much more visible. So I talk about in my conclusion, I say, hey, you know, uh, you know, I, I talk about Xavier University and uh what is known as uh the stained glass initiative here at Xavier, which emerged from uh this discovery that uh the founder uh, of the institution uh uh well got his capital from uh the trading of human beings from slavery right uh and that the foundation, like many other institutions uh the foundation of the institution is really anchored in the ugly history of slavery in the united states uh and uh uh and and so how do we uh and so part of what my new project is about or what my uh you know you know this is part of my new institutional reality right is is contending with that history of the institution uh and using that history uh in order to find ways of uh thinking about my discipline right of in order to find ways about applying right you know uh some of the values that I have equality, social justice and so on and so forth in and outside of the classroom. Uh, and engaging productively with uh not just immediate members of the university community but also uh uh the Cincinnati community and the community that surrounds the university as well uh so that's uh you know so that's uh that's basically what uh what i end up uh you know well, how i basically end uh basically end the the conclusion by talking about you know so this is this is where i'm at now right this is uh this is uh you know i'm i'm writing this in covid times this is my memo and and this this is my current institutional setting yeah
0: absolutely yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and um yeah and you know you, you did mention uh current projects and you know i'm sure that on top of 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 what you just described, uh, there are others uh, going yes. on, so I, I I really wanted to you know pick your uh you know mind about it so you know what you're working on right now in terms of you know writing or other projects that that you have going on
1: yes uh there is there is another project that I'm uh, presently working on um you know so aside from you know so there are two parallel projects that I'm working on, so one obviously is just the continuation of a different iteration of this book but one within the context of xavi university and, and cincinnati and community engagement specifically in cincinnati so that's a parallel very long-term project uh, that will take you know several years uh because each memo it takes a lot of experience to incorporate it to each of the memos uh, so i'm looking forward to doing something of the same thing but within my position at Xavier University. Uh, and then I have a, a, a second project uh that might uh might be concluded a little bit sooner. Uh just uh, uh and uh, that project uh is uh it it's actually based I mean the title of the I have basically the first uh before the colon right I have the first half of the title of this of this project right uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um so there is uh uh there is a book written by one of my f- very favorite writers called Danny Laferriere. Uh he's uh, from Quebec, right? Uh actually he's originally from Haiti and he talks about the migrant experience going from Haiti and then leaving uh living in Quebec. Uh and uh living in this Canadian francophone space. Uh and and uh his 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 you know a lot of his uh uh his his works talk about kind of like the black diasporic identity and experience uh in in that space of Quebec. Uh uh and uh I uh one of his books that he wrote, one of my favorite books uh, that he wrote is called L'Enigma du Retour, uh, The Enigma of the Return. Uh, and it's about how he goes from, uh, it's about his return to Haiti after living in exile in Canada uh, for such a long time, right? And uh, the journey back, right? And w- what does the journey back include, right? Uh, what are the dynamics of the journey back? And I, I, I really find this journey back, the idea of of traveling back fascinating because I I mean, the history, I mean, not the history, but the ways in which people talk about immigration and, and the narratives around migration is often a one way direction, right? You know, or you come from Haiti and then you go right to, uh, to Canada, right? You know, you come from Kenya, you go to the United States, you come from Senegal, right? And then you go to France uh and and there is often kind of like this coming from this uh less privileged setting uh perhaps esca- escaping uh, uh this less privileged setting into uh you know this more privileged setting or country uh and and uh but w- what is less uh paid attention to are the people who Go for this space of more of that's construed as being more privileged, and decides to go back, right? Uh, and and that going back is often, you know, l'énigme du retour, right? What happens uh, when you go back? Uh, and uh, part of my project is, is incorporates uh, both an analysis of uh, works of fiction and and autobiographical works that talk about this idea of returning. Uh, so we can think about not just Daniel Laferriere, L'Enigme du Retour, uh, but you can also think about other like really classics that you found at every Barnes and Nobles, like Americana by Chimamanda Adichie, right? Where her character goes back to Nigeria at the very end. Or you can think about uh, cin- classic texts like Chinua Achebe's uh, No Longer at Ease, where there is also this... Uh, narrative of of going back or seasons of migration to the north right or uh there's, so this these uh these stories these works of fiction uh that 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 talk about the cultural politics of going back uh Checamidukein uh, l'aventure ambigu, right you know the ambiguities of going back and and the, the 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 pain of cultural hybridity, right? You are neither from here or from there when you come back, right, you know? And this struggle, right, with that in-betweenness of identity that's in uh, Sheikh Duquesne's kind of like uh, journey, right? To and, to and fro, right? Uh, as well as, right, seasons of migration, as well as, uh, to a certain extent, even in, in, in Achebe's, uh, no longer it is. Uh, so I, I begin with uh, some of the works of fiction that talk about this narrative of going back. But then I want to also capture the concepts developed in these works of fiction about going back. And I want to compare them to uh, uh, interviews with people who have actually gone back. Uh, I I have, uh, you know, so my family, right? You know, my mother, my brother, I have, uh, we used to live in Sweden and I'm the only one who hasn't gone back, right? My brother... Uh, We're both immigrants in Sweden. Right. And uh, my my mother first left. She said, no, I'm going back to my country. Uh, And then my brother said, oh, yeah, I'm not staying here. I'm going back. Right. So part of it is, oh, yes, you know, there is an entire kind of like uh, set. I have other uncles and aunties who are talking about going back. Some who went back to Kenya and then went back to France or other parts of Europe uh so others who are planning on going back right so what does going back mean uh you know it, it inverts right you know people often think uh you know that oh yes you know once you uh you know you know let's say in the united states once you get your green card and your citizenship then you are just staying there forever and you're happy uh but then these people who decide to leave that and go back right what are some of their uh why do they go back what do they encounter right and what does this narrative of going back? Uh, how does it disrupt disrupt some of the conventional ways, or open up some of the conventional ways that we have of thinking about migration? So I have obviously going back in terms of international types of migration, right? You know, from uh, you know Sweden to Kenya, or uh, you know France to Kenya, or other places. I want to open itself up beyond my immediate family, of course. Uh, and uh then uh going back also not just internationally uh but also going back domestically, where we also think about uh uh you know i have uh my immediate family also in the United states i'm married to uh a wonderful african american woman uh, Shurike, Shurike Nyawalo. and uh shout out to shiriquenyawalo and <laughs> and 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 uh uh her father uh she grew up in aurora illinois and her family were part of the great migration of african americans who left the violence of jim crow in the south right uh the violence and sometimes you know they they talk about the violence that they left up back in the days uh so they left that violence for better opportunities for a better life uh in places like chicago and what's happening is there is a reverse migration going back, right? So similarly, we we speak of the South as this space in the same way that, right, we speak of, right, you know, uh, this uh, of Kenya or, you know, as this space of where there's a lack of privilege, right? Where you are going back to something that you sought to escape. Uh, They are going back to that which they sought to escape here, right? They're going back to Mississippi, like they just built this fantastic ranch, right? And this uh, much bigger, you know, (laughs) house with uh, their wonderful pension, right? From uh, the work after retirement, from the work they did uh, in the suburbs of Chicago, in Aurora, Illinois. And it is not just my in-laws, but an entire set of many of their friends that had migrated from the South going back, right? So they're going back to this place that's often seen as more racist, more backward, uh less progressive uh and and you know why would you want to go back there and they decide to go back and i find you know just once again you know in my 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 comparatist mind like begins to think you know <laughs> about these things you know when i talk to my family who've gone back to kenya and then i talk to my in-laws from mississippi Uh, who've gone back to Mississippi. And then when I talked to my Appalachian friends who left Appalachia as the thing to do, right? Where Appalachia is this place they wanted to, that you know they were expected to escape from, and then came back and they were like, no, 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 I think I prefer to live in Appalachia. I went out, I saw what was outside of Appalachia. Now I'm coming back to Portsmouth, Ohio, right? So once again, this narrative of going back, uh, I want to... Uh, l'énigme du retour, right? The enigma of return. So I want to explore this idea of going back either across national contexts or within a given nation, either in the United States or elsewhere, uh, you know, from a place of a lack of privilege to a place of privilege and then going back to this place that's considered less privileged uh, in order to get insights uh, about that through both interviews as well as works of fiction that that tackle these concepts. Uh, So that is that is basically my uh, my 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 new project that uh, that I should do that I I think about working on. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I mean, uh, I'm saying absolutely in the sense of, yes, please work on it. It's fascinating. (laughs) And uh, I'm looking forward to reading it and, you know, interviewing you. Uh, about it in the future. Um, I want to thank you very much for for talking to us today, and I'm really looking forward to to the next uh, next interview. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks.